evidence and answers. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers is a Christian apologetics ministry led by Dr. Pat Zucran. Pat provides compelling messages from top apologetic scholars defending the Christian worldview and provides valuable resources for every person seeking answers to life's questions, as well as addressing key issues of our time and serves to equip Christians who want to effectively engage their world for Christ. Today, our host, Pat Zucran, will be sharing another question of the week. Let's address the question, is there a God? Now here's Pat. Over the week, we got a whole host of questions from many of you, and thanks for sending in those questions. And that's what we're you know, here for. We're here to answer your questions that you may have about the existence of God and the veracity, the truth of Christianity. And so email your questions to me at pat at evidenceandanswers.org, pat at evidenceandanswers.org or on this YouTube channel live that you are watching here. All right, we want to answer your questions and I can promise you one thing, okay? I can't answer all your questions, all right? But if I can't answer them, I'll try and research them and we'll answer them next week or I can get in touch with some really smart people who probably know the answer and can help you out here, all right? But that's what we're here for. We're here to serve the Lord and we're here to serve you. So let's take a look at some of the questions regarding the existence of God that you've sent in over the week. First one says, Pat, you say if God does not exist, life is ultimately meaningless. So what? I live to enjoy life. Be happy and then I die. That's it. That's enough for me. Well, you know, I run into a lot of people who say that. And that's more of a, unfortunately, I'm going to say self-centered kind of answer. But also think about it, all right? If God does not exist, as I stated last week, the only certainty we have to look forward to is our death and annihilation and our extinction. We live for just a brief moment here upon this earth and then we're extinct forever, never, ever, ever to see our loved ones again. So you might find temporal meaning in maybe your family or having a good time here upon the earth, but in the end, it all ends in pain, suffering, death, and ultimately extinction and annihilation. So ultimately, life is meaningless. But even if, you know, you sit there and say, so what? I don't care. I just party and then I die. All right? Hey, live, drink, be happy, and then I die. Well, to you, I would also offer what's called Pascal's Wager. All right? The famous Pascal's Wager. And, and, and the wager is this. As a Christian, if I am wrong about existence of God and Jesus Christ, if I'm wrong, I've ultimately lost nothing, right? I've lived a good moral life and I die and I'll be extinct. I've really lost nothing. But if Christianity is indeed true and there is compelling evidence that it is indeed true, then you stand to lose everything. Because if Christianity is indeed true and the evidence points in that direction, you stand to be judged by God and separated from Him forever. Separated for all eternity from all that eternal life was ever meant to be. The love, the joy, the peace, the relationship with God and the people of God and all that it was ever meant to be will be lost to you forever. You have everything to lose. So wouldn't a wise person look at the evidence? Wouldn't a wise person want to at least 
check out the evidence because as I'm saying, it's pretty compelling that indeed God exists and Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God who died and rose from the dead. Evidence is pretty compelling. So a wise person would at least want to examine the evidence because there is so much to lose if indeed Christianity is true. But if it's false, we've all lost nothing. So a wise person would at least investigate and look at the evidence. Here's a second question. This is a really good one as well. It says, Pat, you said the probability of a universe like ours is highly unlikely. But how do you know this is the only universe that exists? What if there are multiple universes and we just happen to live in the, in the one that makes life possible? The multi-universe theory then answers your argument of first cause and the design argument, exclamation point. Good argument there. Well, one of the hard things about the multiverse argument is this. We don't know if there's multiple universes out there. We don't know. That's a, one that's really hard to prove. Scientists have a lot of difficulty and none have definitively proved that there are multiple universes out there. So that's very difficult to prove. So it just remains a theory. But even if there are multiple universes out there, all right, and the multiverse theory simply says there are hundreds of universes out there that have been, some machine has been spitting out these universes and it just happens that ours is the just right universe that makes life possible. Well, even if there are multiple universes, you haven't answered the question. You've only pushed it one step back, all right? Remember, whatever has a beginning must have a cause and you must identify the cause. What is it then that originally spit out all these universes? There's something or someone out there produced these universes, all right? And eventually we got one in which life was possible. So you really haven't answered the question. You simply pushed it one step back. What is it or who is it that started producing these universes, right? So you still haven't answered the question there. You simply pushed it one step back. Here's another question here. It says, Pat, you said the universe displays intelligent design, but there are many flaws in nature. For example, the human eye has a blind spot, our skin deteriorates and cuts easily, etc. I could name numerous flaws in nature. How could an intelligent God have designed the universe with so many flaws? Well, there's a couple ways to address this. First of all, when God created the universe, he created it good. And in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall. When sin entered into the world, and after that, the effects of sin, right, began to permeate all of creation. So we live in a fallen creation, right, one that has been marred and damaged, and we're feeling the effects of sin. So that's one of the factors that attributes our universe to deterioration and death and disease. The second part of the answer, or second way to answer this question is this. The question is of design, not of, quote, optimal design, okay? For example, my computer here, you see my com laptop sitting here. There are a bunch of you computer engineers and computer techies out there, I'm sure electrical engineers and others, that you could look at my computer and its design and say, there are flaws in this design. 10 computer engineers, we could come together and come up with a better design for your computer. But that doesn't mean it's not designed. 
Just because you don't like the design or think there are flaws in the design doesn't mean it is not designed. Obviously, if you saw my computer, you would say it's designed. It's the product of an intelligent design. It's just, I don't like the design or I see flaws in there, right? But that doesn't mean it's not designed. Then we must ask ourselves, you know, what do we mean by optimal design, all right? For example, yes, the human eye, I believe, has a blind spot. I've talked to some ophthalmologists about this and they said yes and I said well how do we get rid of that blind spot and he said well you're gonna have to make you know the eyelids bigger and you have to make that eye cavity back here longer all right but as a result and I know I'm not using good medical terms here okay sorry you medical people out there but as a result then we're gonna have to change your eye socket all right and we're gonna have to change the structure of the head all right to accommodate all these changes but what do we do about the brain you know we can't really shrink the brain uh, we're going to make the eye bigger and the cavity larger. Maybe we'll just make a bigger head, okay? Well, that's fine. But then now you're going to have to mess with the neck. Can the neck handle a head that is several times larger? Okay, well, we'll just make a bigger neck. Well, what about the rest of the body? Can a body, can a body handle? It's got to be, you know, physically symmetrical here. Well, okay, we'll just make you taller. We'll make you eight, 10 feet tall. All right, okay. But then can a, you know, calcium kind of bone structure and organs handle a being that is that tall. We know that people who are over seven feet tall have a lot of skeletal and muscular challenges as well. Okay, well, we'll replace it with a aluminum frame, aluminum body. All right, well then, what about the other organs? I mean, you see where it goes? I mean, what do you mean by optimal design? Where does it end? Another example that was brought up here, you know, skin deteriorates, cuts easily. Well. Okay, maybe we could make you out of plastic, all right? But, you know, skin is really good because it gives us our sense of touch, our sense of feel. That would be gone if we replaced this with plastic or, you know, cowhide kind of leather. It'd be a lot tougher, but we'd lose that sense of touch, which is so critical, you know, for us to function as human beings. We also have the ability to sweat and cool down. Well, how could we do that if we were covered in some kind of indestructible plastic or aluminum or, or even thick leather? You know, how does that come about? Well, then maybe we don't have to breathe. We can not use blood vessels. Well, well then what do we use? You know, the electrical cords, I mean, where does it come to an end? In other words, this may be, with the physical limitations we have in the universe, this may be you know, accommodating all that's involved in the created order here. This may be the best kind of body we can have for the kind of universe that we live in. You know, so when you say optimal design, I mean, you know, what exactly does that mean? You know, and, and they, we could just go on and on and on. So the question is not do I like the design or is it perfect? The question we're looking at is does it show design? even though you may not like the design, right? Even if you don't like the design, it doesn't mean it's not designed. You may not like the design of this computer here, but that doesn't mean it is not designed. That's a great question here, and that's what we're looking at. And also you have to accommodate that we do live in a fallen system. As a result of sin entering into the world, that's where death, disease, and the effects of sin do have an effect on the created order. Great question there. As you can see, we got some really, really uh, highly intelligent, highly intelligent audience out there uh, listening to us, sending in their very challenging questions. 
Another one here. Pat, you said atheists have no morals, but I know atheists who live much more moral lives than Christians. So how can you say atheists are less moral? You don't need a God to have morality. Good question. I did not say that atheists have no morals. I said without God, there is not a basis for morality. What does it matter if I live like Adolf Hitler or a self-indulgent kind of life like Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, or if I sacrifice my life like Mother Teresa, right, for the lepers in India? What difference does it make how I live? If God does not exist, then really we all end up in the same place, extinct and annihilated. So really, what difference would it make how we live? Second of all, how would you determine right from wrong if there is no God without a universal moral law that stands over us? How do you determine right and wrong? Nietzsche, Dr. Will Provine, who I quoted, and numerous others have stated, if God does not exist, then there is no basis for morality. That's what I was saying. There is no basis for morality. How do you determine an objective and absolute standard of right and wrong? How do you determine that? Well, God does not exist. There's not a universal moral law. History shows us you end up with a system of a might makes right kind of ethical system. All right, those in power then set the rules of right and wrong. Or you, the civilization deteriorates into moral relativism. In the book of Judges, the final verse, it ends by saying, each man did what was right in his own eyes. And you end up in a form of anarchy, right? complete dissolution complete breakdown of a culture or a civilization. We can't live in a society that practices moral relativity, right? That just degenerates into anarchy, right? So, yes, I know many atheists who live good, quote, moral lives. But what I was saying is there is no basis for morality. How do you determine what is right and what's wrong? How do you determine that? You can't say... There's an absolute standard of right and wrong. How do you judge evil unless you have an absolute standard of good from which we have departed? How do you know we are getting better or we're getting worse if there's not an absolute standard from which to judge, to measure our society by? So it is true that there are atheists and those who don't believe in God who live ethical lives, but ultimately there really is no clear or consistent way to determine right from wrong, to measure better from best. There is no ultimate meaning then in how we live. That's what I was saying because we all come to the same end, extinction and annihilation. So that's what I was saying there when I was saying there is no basis then for morality. And here's a related question here. It says, Pat, you said all people have the same moral law code, but there are cultures that practice cannibalism, and in India they practice wife burning, and in other cultures polygamy. How can you say that all cultures have a similar moral law code? Well, very good question here. Yes, we all have a very similar moral law code in every culture if you study them, all right? Let's take the example of polygamy, all right? Yes, there are cultures that practice a man can have multiple wives, 
right? But in all those cultures, adultery is wrong. If any of those wives sleeps with another man, she gets severely punished along with a man. So you see, adultery is wrong in every culture. Marriage is highly honored in every culture, right? It might be practiced a little differently, right? But the principle that adultery is morally wrong is the same in every culture. What about uh, cannibalism? Well, murder is wrong in every culture. And there are a few cultures that practice cannibalism, all right? Now, in every culture, murder is wrong, and all cultures value human life. And these cultures that practice cannibalism actually value human life. In these cultures we have studied that practice cannibalism, here's the reasons why they eat, they eat someone, all right? In some cultures, they will eat a great chief or a great leader. They will eat his body so that his spirit will pass on to the warriors and leaders of the next generation, okay? That's how much they value his life, that they want his spirit to be passed on to them. Now, a second reason cultures practice cannibalism is that they understand that the body is sacred and it's the worst form of vengeance, the worst form of desecration that they can perform on an enemy. Okay? If you have an enemy and someone you really despise and don't like, the worst form of vengeance you can take is eating their body because life is valuable. The body is valuable. And that's why if you eat the body of an enemy, that's the worst, the very worst form of revenge that you can inflict upon your enemy. It's because the body is valuable and life is valuable. So, see, even those who are practicing cannibalism view the value of life and the body. Now, so it's not like you know, they're hungry one night and they look around and say, man, I'm hungry, there's nothing to eat. Hey, let's go eat little Johnny over there, right? It's, it's, it's not like that. It's because they value life and the body and it is either, the, you know, a great honor to eat their great leader so their spirit will be passed on to them or it's the worst form of, of vengeance that they can inflict upon an enemy because life and the body are so valuable. What about wife burning? Well, for those of you not too familiar in that, it wasn't too long ago that in India, uh, in the Hindu religion, when a husband died, he was cremated. And the wife, if she was still alive then, would throw herself into the fire and be cremated with her husband. Now, why did they do that? Once again, it's because this culture valued marriage so highly. All right, that you are married for life and into the next reincarnation or whatever it may be. All right, that's why in honor of her husband, she would follow him in death and throw herself into the fire. That's why. So in every culture, adultery is wrong and marriage was highly valued. Now, we would disagree with the practice, right? But the principle is still the same, that marriage is sacred, adultery is wrong all right so when you study these cultures and see the value behind the practices we may not agree with the practices but the value and the moral system behind these cultures are all very similar here
Great. I think we got time for perhaps one more. Let's see. There are several good ones here. We're going to have to get to them next week, but maybe we could answer this one. Pat, isn't belief in God just a crutch? It's an expression of man's need for a father figure. But now that we have advanced in our science and in our understanding of creation, we can discard this father figure and get rid of this crutch. It's not a crutch to acknowledge and live according to truth. Anthony Flew was an atheist philosopher and he lived by this motto. He said, follow the truth wherever it leads, even if it's to conclusions you don't like. Let me repeat that again. Follow the evidence wherever it leads, even if it's to conclusions that you don't like. And Anthony Flew lived by that motto. All right, it's one of the things I admire about him. He was an atheist for most of his life and near, I think the last 10 years of his life, as he continued to examine the evidence, he became a theist, right? a believer in God. Perhaps this generation's greatest atheist in his final years became a believer in God because he followed the evidence where it led, even if it was to conclusions he didn't like. All right? Now, I would agree that belief in God would be just the crutch if there was no evidence there. Right? And we just needed it to comfort ourselves in this cold, dark universe right? and give us some sort of comfort and meaning as we traverse through the cold, dark universe, as some atheists claim. But if you look at the evidence carefully, I mean, if you examine the evidence, uh, and I presented some last week, right, the four basic evidences, and you can go on our website there to examine them more in detail. But if you look at the evidences, pretty compelling that indeed God does exist. And a wise person would then move in the direction where the evidence leads. Christianity is not a blind leap in the dark. Christianity is what we call a reasonable faith. As Christians, we take a step of faith in the direction where the evidence leads. And I think there's more evidence that God exists than he does not exist. And I think it takes more faith to be an atheist than to believe in an intelligent creator. Next, we must ask ourselves this question. There is a universal need for worship and a belief in God in people all over the world. All right? The vast, vast, vast majority of people around the world worship and believe in a God. And that is a driving need in human beings all over the world. Why is that? Now that's another argument for the existence of God. It's called the argument from existential need or the argument uh, from meaning. In all of us, there's this basic need and drive to know our Creator and basically to worship Him or it or whatever one may come to believe. But there is a belief in a divine being and a need to worship Him. Where does that come from? Where in the world does that come from, that powerful driving need? For example, we all need water, all right? Does that mean then that water does not exist? No. In all of us, we have a need for water. Therefore, it's most likely, it's reasonable to conclude that water exists somewhere out there. In all human beings, there is this need to know the Creator and to worship a divine being. And where in the world does that come from? That shows you it's reasonable then to conclude then there is an intelligent Creator and we are designed to know Him and to worship Him. So is belief in God just a crutch? 
Nope, I don't think so. And the atheist, or one who doesn't believe in God, must ask, is there atheism? A crutch. All right? There's nothing about being a weak-minded or weak individual if you simply are acknowledging the evidence that is indeed there and living according to the truth that we have before us. All right? All right, well, those are some tough questions. We didn't get to all of them. Thank you for those of you who have sent in your questions. Uh, any question you got about Christianity or current issues that we've got out there, email it to me there at pat at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat at evidenceandanswers.org. And perhaps on a, a later show, we will address your questions here on Question of the Week. So thanks for being with us this week. We look forward to seeing you again next week here on Questions of the Week. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally. That number in Hawaii is area code 808 or you may contact them through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcast, like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio, for you to listen to or download. Be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. <laughs>